0: here we go monday night the music gets me excited it's time for ira on sports true oldies channel i'm mike balsamo ira in studio with us tonight and i never want to say unfortunately you're in studio with us but this time, it kind of is, Iraq, a little bit of a, a mishap in your plans.
1: Yeah, I was going to go to the All-Star Game in the weekend, but it seems like everybody in Los Angeles has COVID and The people <laughs> I was going to go with, everybody has it, and then they sold the tickets. So we're not, did not go to the All-Star Game, but I'll be in New York next week. I'm going to go to Yankees-Mets, so I'll make up for baseball to go Tuesday, Wednesday, Yankees-Mets series
0: at City Field. And you had said um, the fifth row, right? But your seats were like fantastic
1: at the Dodger Stadium, but they they sold them. So I didn't get them.
0: (laughs) You've been to all star games, home run derbies, which is more fun.
1: Um, I would think that the home run derby is the all-star game when the old time when they kept the players in but by the end of the game they're putting all these now I think 20 players are not in the game that were named so there's a lot of players that you don't no one's ever heard of I mean people who follow baseball a lot have heard it but generally they're not the stars where in the old days like a Pete Rose would play to the ninth inning those are Mm -hmm. the stars would play and Barry Bonds would play the entire game now they don't do that anymore
0: everyone's excited to see Yankees catcher Lou Trevino you know household names and usually that's the seventh
1: eighth ninth inning and that's when the game matters and it's like everybody leaves they're like you know especially in Dodger stadium you get to see tomorrow night think how many people leave that stadium early go to different parties <laughs> the stadium might be like empty at the end of the game
0: which is something i wouldn't be shocked <laughs> if we did see it we'll talk about uh, plenty of baseball later as we get ready for the home run derby in less than an hour in the uh, all-star game coming up tomorrow don't forget at ira on sports follow ira anywhere on social media Ira, where have you been? Um, I just went to the Marlins-Pirates game this week.
1: Uh, excited to be down there and my, I took my uh, parents down to the game. Sat, uh, it was, uh, I went with like be, I, 10 other people were in the stadium. No, it was a <laughs> Thursday afternoon game. Uh, it was fun. It went, when you go there, it was, I like the seats. I like sitting, their club, their VIP club it's is nice. tremendous. You can walk, when you park your car from the parking garage to the stadium, you could go to a little league baseball field and park and be that close to the seats. <laughs> Literally, you park your car and you walk the through, and they have good food and everything and you walk right out there and there was no have the whole road to yourself and I was right next to the pirate dugout uh, my mom got a picture with Cabron Hayes Brian Hayes mm-hmm. uh, it was very nice it was great to look right into the dugout and those things But and it was a good game that was a really good game
0: I, I don't get why they don't do better I mean maybe it's just that there's not many native floridians here and then that's part of the reason being downtown kind of makes it a little bit tougher to get to than say dolphin stadium but i mean like you said good food good seats The, the marlins aren't terrible they should sell more
1: yeah, it's uh, it was surprising, but it was—it's not surprising. It, but it is. The, actually, it is surprising because we go there and just see your stadium that seats like with 40,000 people, and there's like nobody there.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's happened to me before. Every other concession stand is closed. You know, like they don't need everything. Keeping it on the Florida theme uh, tonight, we've got an excellent interview, and this guy is going to tell us all about. Maybe the most fabled NFL team of all time. He's Marshall John Fisher.
1: Well, as Marshall said during, he stated in the book, it's 50 years, there was never an undefeated NFL team. And then in 1972, the Dolphins were undefeated. Then it's been 50 years since, no undefeated team. So it's like this legendary team. If it was so easy, we'd have another undefeated team. And now it's even harder because now you have to go like 20 20 or 21 or no mm-hmm. to actually become undefeated. But this was the 70 Dolphin team. And just the book is tremendous and it brings up about Miami and I just loved uh, I'm real excited to interview him for the show
0: yeah that'll be a great interview right about 7 30 we'll chime in on that you could thank the New York Giants for there not being a another undefeated team (laughs) let's talk about the open championship iron man we got a good four days of golf I think we got a little spoiled here Rory McIlroy put himself in the driver's seat and then took a back seat to Cam Smith and one of the greatest final nine holes I've ever seen. And just putting and everything lights out. Congrats to Cam Smith, your new Open champion.
1: Uh, Cam Smith, who's people been talking about, is this good golfer. Great golfer, the up-and-coming from Australia, 20 years old. Um, it seemed like before this year he had won the Zork Open twice, and then he had won in, <laughs> in Hawaii twice, and really hadn't done much else, but then he wins the Players' Championship this year, uh, competes well throughout in the Masters, uh, and he, now he's number two in the world, and then he wins here at the Open putting great. But it was just the idea. I've, I love this tour for a number of reasons because the final two days it was hovland and rory and it was cam smith and cam young cam young rookie from uh the rookie golfer from america who played lights out and it was this battle i mean they were in the same group each time each golfer was it for two whole days and you had the whole live the idea that you had Rory, who was a poster child for the PGA Tour, everyone want Rory to win, and then the rumors of Cam Smith jumping to the Live Tour, and because everyone's criticized the Live Tour, it's like, oh, although golfers are old, they're not popular, they're past their prime, and now you have Cam Smith, who has the signature win of the year, come back, wins this tournament on a Sunday, and if he, as expected, is going to jump to the Live Tour any moment, that would be uh, that would be certainly a nail, not in the coffin of the PGA Tour, but certainly a shot across the bow, more than, uh, equal to Dustin Johnson, and even more than Phil Mickelson.
0: Coming off a major win, yeah, that's a pretty big deal, especially, like you said, uh, moving up to number two in the world. Let's talk about how we got here, Ira, and this was something that like I said, with just 18 holes to go, pretty much anyone in the world would have said this is Rory McIlroy's tournament. But let's start on Thursday.
1: Well, I mean, the one thing about Rory I just wanted to mention is that he won in 2014 uh, the Open and PGA Championships, so that gave him four titles. So now, since then, he has been in contention in these majors. He's now been se- seven of the last ten years. He's been the Masters top top ten seven seven years of Masters in the top ten. Uh, the U.S. Open five year five times the Open Championship, four PGA two. So he's been eighteen in the last 30 tournaments he's been in in the majors been in the top 10 and so people are like boy this is and he made it this is the holy grail at St Andrews I really this really means a lot to me so he put a lot of pressure on himself and he's played really you know, well this year in the majors so and as I said he's become this without Tiger not playing well he's become sort of the face of golf and he was the favorite going into this tournament so after the first day Cam Young shot it was eight under and Rory was six under and Cam Smith was five uh, former Iron Sports Taller Gooch was at four under. Dustin Johnson. Uh, that's why you know I predicted Dustin was going to win because I thought it was like one of those courses where there is how many greens. What? There's like 12 greens because they play with these big double greens. Mm -hmm. You just can pound the ball as far as you can go. Driving distance is really, really important. And that's why I thought Justin Johnson was going to do well, especially Hovland, too, at four under. And then a player that we hadn't heard so much this year because of injuries, Bryce at DeChambeau, really had a really nice tournament. And the first day, he was three under. And then Tiger, though, just he started the day with a double bogey. He got the shot, and then it just, again, spiraled out of control and shot uh, plus six, 78, another poor day from Tiger. It didn't seem like he was limping so much;
0: just didn't play so well. And we'd go on to see. I believe he was two over on on Friday. Uh, a lot of the talk in national media era is the Tiger's done, you know, especially after the, the plus six. You ready to throw in the towel? No, on I'm not.
1: I think it's look. He's been injured. He's coming back. I all these people that are saying he's finished. It's it's, it's he's just getting back into into form. If he can stay healthy and keep practicing, I, I look for him to do better next year. I'm not ready to, to write him off. I think people were saying that now. If next year we have a, the same similar performances uh, about a year and a half or two years after the accident. That's one thing, but I think he's just getting back and just learning how to walk the course and, and getting his stamina up. So I'm not gonna. I'm not ready to throw the. No, I'm not not gonna do that. But, <laughs> And on Friday, Cam Smith shot the 64, he went to 13-under, Cam Young was at was at 69, shot was at 11-under, and then Rory was 11-under and Hovland at 10-under. After that, it was like my, you know, they really they controlled the top of the board. They they controlled the board for the rest of the tournament. And Dustin Johnson was at nine under after Friday's round. Uh, Scotty Scheffler, who's number one in the world, was eight under. Uh, who missed the cut? Uh, Colin Morikawa. A lot of people liked him coming into this tournament, but didn't play well. Max Homa, who people I saw, another people liked him a lot. Uh, Brooks Kepka, again, just did not yeah. has not had a good year this year in the majors. Again, missed the cut. Phil was seventy-two, seventy-seven, and Tiger played better. He only shot a 75 and it was at the end. He had a bogey, but it just was not. He, he had no chance to make the cut. It was like, it was almost painful to watch him just struggling out there.
0: So, moving into Saturday, you're looking at it, and Kim Smith has a nice little lead here. And you're thinking, if he can just keep this going, he's going to run away with it after what he did the day prior. But that wasn't the case on Saturday.
1: Well, the early groups, went, like Kisner, uh, uh, Bryson, they shot 500, 700. Like you could see that the scoring, this is one thing that it, the, the British Open, we call it the Open, British Open, the it's it's one of those tournaments that they could shoot at, at even par if it's windy but it was never windy the weather though it was perfect weather the entire time so everyone was able to attack the holes and it was just it was simple without the wind it lost all its bite in terms of per se um after six holes hoblin was at 14 under rory young and smith were at 12 under but then the key putt for the key play if rory would have made if Rory would have won this tournament on 10 he was in the uh, the bunker the green greenside bunker mm. and he chipped in made an eagle what a shot what a shot that would have been his signature shot that could have been like the Tiger shot like every this this could have been his signature signature shot if he would have won the tournament because that really propelled him to go at 16 under Hovland ended up being 16 under he had uh from 3 to 6 he had birdies and he had uh, birdies on 10 no bogeys on the day and Cam Smith actually shot a 73 so he fell back so he is a 12 under and Cam Young was a 12 under so he shot a 71 so you're like okay Rory's at 1600 under hovland's at 60 under four stroke lead under smith and young and i think in the last 50 years nobody's come back from more than four strokes to win the british open so you look at players like scotty at 11 under dj at 10 under could they add a chance even speed jordan speed at eight under maybe not a chance to come back in there so it was going to be setting up to be those four golfers that have controlled the whole tournament going competing
0: this is Ira on Sports. True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Marshall John Fisher joins us at 7:30. Don't forget to follow Ira at Ira on Sports. Let's talk about Sunday, Ira, because people were—I don't even think that that excited. They were like, "Well, we're always just going to win." and i think you know smarter fans are like this is still pretty open here and victor Hovland's no slouch either
1: victor Hovland was no slouch but also it was like you've seen rory have these problems
0: sundays it, aren't his aren't his not best his
1: best day only he has good on sundays when he's way out of it yeah. and then he has these great he shoots a 64 um when the day started, though, you saw like Abraham answer and the Thai Saddam Kazazin, They both shot like sixty fives. You started seeing low scores. So that's like it's like, like I was watching at three or four or five o'clock in the morning everything that was going on. But you saw that everyone was scoring low. And then when and Rory and Sam Burns shot at eight hundred to do a sixty four. So you're like no. This is not a true major. This is more like the uh, Phoenix Open, you know, something like that, <laughs> where they're going to shoot, you know, minus thirty, where you're going to have to get birdies. This is not a this is not a classic major like a U.S. Open, where you're, you're like happy
0: for par, it's yeah.
1: happy for par, get a couple birdies, and that's sort of you got to really get these numbers there. I mean, Cam Young started it with a bogey on on uh, and then he dropped, and then uh, and Rory and, and Victor, of course, were at sixteen under, but then Cam Smith made his run, just a little run. Cam Smith got a birdie to get to thirteen under. Cam Smith. Got, Cam Young got back at 13 under, and then you started looking at the field, and Dustin Johnson got up to 12 under, I'm like wow. And I'm thinking there's yeah. a moment there when he's four strokes back, I'm like, boy, Dustin Johnson might have a shot. Jordan Spieth was at 12 under, Fleet was at 12 under, Adam Scott's at 12 under, and you're like, wow, this leaderboard is this tremendous. Is like It's yeah. <laughs> got exciting. But then Cam on the fifth hole, Cam Smith and Cam Young got to 14 under, and the thing was, I kept tweeting to my tweeting out, and I kept sending text to my friends. I'm like, Rory is blowing this. And they're like, what? He's not bogey. He's not making mistakes. But I go, everyone else is gaining. And these are holes that he needs to get more birdies on. And he wasn't getting birdies. His first birdie was on the, on the fifth hole. He got his first. It was a par five. And he tapped in for a birdie. But he just missed an eagle. And it wasn't like Rory was struggling. He was just missing putts by a little bit. But those are putts that he had to make. And then so Rory was at 17 under. Cam Young, after like six holes, Cam Young was at 15 under. Uh, Hovlo was 15 under. Smith, uh, 14 under. And then at eight, Cam Young might have cost himself the tournament. Remember, he lost by a stroke. He went into the bushes. I never saw the whole day someone hit a a, a shot in the bushes, (laughs) had to take a drop, took a bogey, and that really might have hurt him in in the whole tournament. But then on the 10th hole, that's when Cam Smith started his – just run. Because he went five straight holes with birdies. He birdied on 10. He birdied on, on 11. And then Rory on 9 also got a birdie. That made him go to 18. So he's still two strokes ahead of Cam Smith, but that was his last birdie. On the ninth hole, that was his last birdie yep. of the day. And Not didn't on the back side. Didn't, didn't bogey. But it, and then on 12 Cam Smith birdies again to get to 17. That's three in a row for him. And then at 13, he birdies again, 18. So suddenly now he is tied with Rory. Rory's, you know, they was he was one stroke behind. was one hole behind. So Rory had just finished 12 He was 1800 cam finished 13 was 1800 and that was sort of the change of the guard rory missed by an inch on 13 for a birdie hovland bogeyed 15 and smith an, another an, on that par five got another birdie to take him to 19. so now he's sitting at 19 took the lead but remember rory had his chance going on the par five but he only parred that hole that mm. he had to birdie that hole to get it he, he saw that that cam smith was birding all these holes he needed to get a birdie on some of those and he did and Cam Smith was playing ahead of him but he could not do anything. Yeah, he got to to watch
0: Cam Smith, too, knowing you have to match it.
1: Right, and they weren't playing in the same group, but the way that the field was, everyone is like, they're all standing around. They're all playing with the same greens. That's why the first day took like six hours because there's a few greens they all play. These are humongous greens that people play, and there's no trees out there, so everybody sees whatever else everybody's Mm -hmm. doing. You could hear the crowd screaming and yelling. Um, And then after 15, Smith was at, at 19 under, and Rory was at 18 under. Cam Young was at 17 under. And then at 17... Uh, Smith hit an awful second shot. Awful second shot, left him with a third shot on the par four He's like putting. He, there's 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 uh, bunkers all around him. He has to hit this weird, this is like almost miniature golf yeah. flag, where he had to hit it like around and down just to get it on the green, leave himself, what, uh, like a 10, 12-foot putt, and then he putts that in for pars. Just that was the par save of all par saves. That was amazing. And then uh, and then Rory on 17 just misses a birdie. And then you get to 18, and I was, Cam Young is – is teeing off and Victor Hovland's ball almost hits him but <laughs> <That was the, laughs> he ended up getting an eagle on that hole to go to under. but Smith averaged tee shot but was able to get to when he birdied to 18 then that got him to go to 20 and then Rory had no shot I mean it was Rory couldn't an e- eagle Rory yeah. couldn't eagle in and it was one of those things where it just like slipped away from Rory I mean it was like Cam Smith took that lead and it was one of those things where Rory just oh terrible Rory hits a, we're used to the British Open hitting the water and making terrible mistakes Rory wasn't making mistakes he just wasn't making those birdies and a lot of people saying well it's not really his fault cam cam smith passed him he was had eight birdies to two uh, eight birdies for the day but cam young also he had a four stroke lead on young and uh, cam smith and both and both cam young also passed him so got by one stroke so i thought it was a poor day for Mori. i people are giving him a lot of oh, he, he was gracious in defeat all those other things but it was a missed opportunity a tremendously missed opportunity
0: you can't uh, Tiger Woods and, you know, golfers of that status that we've wanted to put Rory in for 15 years, don't blow four rule leads on Sunday. Just not going to happen. And I think that's the best way to put it. He didn't play bad, just didn't play good. You got to score, especially when everyone's dropping, going to minus five, minus six on the day. You need to be there too, and he wasn't.
1: And Hovland shot a 74 and uh, and finished at fourteen hundred, tied with Fleetwood at third. But remember, R- I mean fourth, but Rory finished in third place to Kim Young. And I think that was the one thing is, not only did Kim Smith pass him, but Kim Young also. And I Cameron Young, uh, great, I mean, last year at this time, but they said he was 1,200th in the world. And now <laughs> look at him now, he's playing great. I saw him play with Jakob Neem at the Genesis, and he also played at the Honda. So I, I've seen Kim Young play a bunch of times. And he's a long driver, really fun to watch. He has the MLB baseball patch yeah. on his on his arm, <laughs> advertising that. Supposedly
0: like, he gets free tickets for life or something like that <laughs> yeah. as, a, as a result of the deal.
1: Um, Dustin Johnson ended up 13-under. Uh, Bryson DeChambeau 12-under. For both of those golfers who had sort of up and down years, you are like to see now Bryson looks like he's healthy and playing better. Spieth at 12-under. Uh, Shane Lowry, who I thought was going to do really well, finished 21st at 9-under. Scotty Scheffler. Everyone was waiting for him to, to fire. It was like almost, he just didn't. He just finished at nine under 21st uh will zalatoris another one i liked a lot finished at uh eight under and john Rom, uh it's just a weird tournament i mean he talked about how this was the most important tournament for him to win just didn't play well seven under 34th uh, uh 34th and justin thomas coming off the pj victory i i thought he would played much better in this four on four under 53rd it's not a really good tournament at mm-hmm. all for jt
0: so you know the old adage is drive for show putt for dough and over the last, what, only three years or so, it's kind of completely shifted. Everyone wants to bomb the ball. It's it's like a new revolution. Now we see Cam Smith win because he's the best putter on tour. And I'm hoping that there's a little bit of a shift back to where people, I was thrilled watching him step up to a 12-footer and just casually knock him in every time. To me, it was more exciting than seeing Bryson hit the ball 450 yards.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was, it was those putts that he made. I mean, he was making 10-footers, 12-footers, 8-footers. They weren't just tap tapping, tap and tap. He was making his putts, whereas Rory didn't make his putts. And that was the big difference. And, yeah. and that was, I mean, Cam Smith played very much Tiger-like uh, in many ways in that. Even though I don't think Tiger's ever had a torn where he really felt like he needed to—it was the course was so easy, but. Uh it was just it, it was a bad loss for I'll, I'll, I'll tell the 50, Cam Smith jumps to Live right now and and he beat Rory and Rory was the poster child for PGA that was the PGA tour that was a big thing.
0: So yeah, you've been um, you know on the laptop refreshing obsessed, before we went on. Obsessed with this Live thing. You think we're one of the few shows that doesn't bash Live? We're we're, we're all for free opportunity. You think we're going to see a move for Cam Smith real soon? I
1: think Cam Smith. I think Adam Scott. I think Mark Leishman. Remember Greg Norman is from Australia and when they ask Cam Smith after the tournament, they go about live he goes oh, I don't want to talk about why did you ask me that question right now not saying oh I love the PJ Tour yeah. he clearly was and they're going to probably offer him 90 million Phil was offered was given supposedly 200 Dustin Johnson 125 Brooks 100 Bryson 100 um, the Palm Beach Post uh, Tom D'Angelo interviewed uh, Norman and Norman said after this tournament we're going to see some big names a lot of people are saying Hideki Matsuyama, uh, former Masters winner from last year, might be because they want to put a live tour event in Japan. That he could be one of those names. I mean, you even hear Bubba Watson, former two-time Master winner. Uh, not so much about Ricky Fowler. Maybe they don't want yeah, him. I was going to say. But, you know, it's sort of like they got all these golfers. I thought uh, Henrik Stenson uh, would be an interesting one. Not that he, because he's such a great golfer, but he is the Ryder Cup European Ryder Cup captain, that would and they're going to take the captain away <laughs> from him. I mean, this is so much like wrestling. You know, I grew up on this I watched a special last night of Bill Goldberg on AE, which anyone who loves wrestling should watch it was great but it's <laughs> you like would be a Goldberg I fan. love that it, yeah it was like great it was played at the University of Georgia every star there but anyway I, I thought it was, it's very wrestling like in terms of taking you know, it's like someone switches teams and what happens and, and those things but they're thinking about creating like these Australian teams part of the live where there would be Cam Smith Adam Scott Mark Leishman maybe another Australian player but they're going to have they want to create the idea that there's a team concept which every a lot of my friends are like that's the stupidest idea but i'm starting to get around come around to it a little bit i'm intrigued about matthew fitzpatrick even though he said after he won the us open he's not and also cantley like, i keep hearing so much about him too so so a lot of names out there but i I'd be shocked if Cam Smith doesn't jump tomorrow. Like it seems like that is like a given that he's going. And again, the criticism of all these golfers is, oh, they're too old, they haven't played well, they're not nice. Like it's like, oh, Brooks, these guys aren't nice. And like Cam Smith, everyone says he lives in Jacksonville. Everyone says he's the nicest person in the world. That's the so, rumor. Yeah. Right, so this is sort of like the whole narrative of the uh, live golfer would be ruined by this.
0: Yeah, it's not all Patrick Reed anymore. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> What's next for golf?
1: Uh, three. Uh, the thing is that they have the three M, and then the the week after is going to be exciting because the Rocket Mortgage Classic is in Detroit. And the Liv has an event in Bedminster uh, at the same time. And then they play the Wyndham, which you probably know what to will play in. And then the FedEx championships in Memphis, Delaware, and then Atlanta. And then the season's over. So we're almost done with golf from this perspective. The Liv tour will go in the fall, but we're getting close to, to the end. And it's the last major of the year.
0: You got about uh, five or six minutes till Marshall John Fisher joins us here on Ira on Sports. This is the true oldies channel. Ira, let's talk a little baseball. You were at a game and it turned out to be a great one. Well,
1: I would look. Mar- Pirates and Marlins, a great game. but hard to be say, but there was some interesting. It was weird place. I- the one thing I noticed watching a lot of baseball this year, the defense is not great. It used to be. You went to a major league game, and you go to a minor league game. The minor league games would make errors, like now I'm seeing that in the major leagues. Yeah. Like you're seeing routine plays. Uh, Anderson for the Marlins cost the almost cost the team the game. Now he hit a triple in the eleventh inning to win the game, but it was like a terrible error. And the throwing errors, that the, the mistakes that people make, just dropping routine pop ups, not catching the balls on. It, it, I, I have not seen anything like this. It, it, they're not again. They're, it's just a skill level. You're seeing it in lots of sports, but I am. It's the one thing I noticed when I watched, because I was in my hometown, I watched double-A baseball all the time, and it's a, it's hard to tell like what's the pitching and this because it's hard, but you always could see there's so many errors, and I don't care what they're classifying as errors mm-hmm. like, I'm just saying bad defensive plays, really.
0: Well, think about in the 80s, shortstops were not big names. They played defense. Then you had Jeter, A-Rod, Nomar garcia Power, and there was like three shortstops who could hit. Now shortstops are the top guys on the team. Doesn't mean they're great on defense. It means they're they're a great hitter. And you'll see, you know, the giant, the the Yankees brought in a guy just to play shortstop. Like go hit two hundred. We want you to make every play, and he does. It was a smart move because you
1: have Stanton and Judge and everyone. Yeah, else. look,
0: we, we can't allow thirty errors anymore in the middle infield. We got to you know get the ball to first base. Um, tell us a little bit more about this game because you described a play to me that I still can't picture in my head.
1: Well, it was on top of seventh. It was Marquez was for the Pirates on third base, and and Newman walked, and they called the umpire called a walk or didn't call anything and the catcher dropped the ball so the question was did Newman swing or was it a strike or whatever so he was sort of like catcher went to tag him out and the and Marquessis was on third base and he just sort of kept walking to home and they called it like a – he was caught out trying to steal home. But he had the – they could have been on first and third and two out. Instead, the inning's over because the guy walked – Newman walked, but they just tagged – everyone was confused because the umpire wouldn't make a call. And I didn't – until I was listening on the radio afterwards, I didn't even know what had happened in that. But it was a, it was an exciting game from that and some other weird plays. But I think that's what you want to see. I mean, the other point was that the pitching was you – know, both pitchers, Zach Thompson and uh, Braxton Garrett, both pitched over 100 pitches, which I don't know the last time Rarity. We saw. Yeah, <laughs> to see, a pitcher's throwing under pitches in a game.
0: Let's talk about, uh, you know, we kick off the Midsummer Classic tonight, and I love baseball all-star break. A lot of sports, people could care less. I know baseball, a lot of people don't care about, but I really enjoy it. Home Run Derby comes first. This might be the bigger spectacle. We're going to see Pete Alonzo uh, attempt to win back-to-back-to-back. Guys like Kyle Schwarber and Juan Soto are going to be there to try to stop him. What do you think happens tonight? I-
1: I, look, Alonzo is what we should pick. He, he is really good at this, and we've yes. learned from the past that people that are really good, they keep entering, and i got to give him credit, whereas it's like if Jordan kept entering slam dunk contests, I like the fact that he keeps entering. Yeah, so he's i champ. like to see him win, but I also like Corey Seager because Corey Seager played at Dodger Stadium, and he hits all these balls, and I think he knows how the win patterns work and all those things. So I do like the fact, I know that Corey is not this big home run hitter, but he's the type of swing, the more compact swing, that really does well in a contest like this where you're not trying to hit the ball. It doesn't really matter. How far you hit it? I guess if it's a bonus points, mm-hmm. how lanes. But the point is that it's better. But uh, excuse me, pulls is in this kind. Con- it'd be w- how uh, uh, whatever symbolic would it be? I not, we're not, we're not, we're wrong word, but uh, historic would be if our Pulhos would win this after having 685 home runs in the major leagues. I
0: I think that anyone can win besides Pujols. So I think that Jose Ramirez, <laughs> Jose Ramirez is great value to me. <clears throat> I, I've seen him from plus 1500 to plus 1800. Won't be shocked if he wins and. Pools, if he hits like seven home runs, I'd be impressed. He's going to be gassed if he even makes it uh, to the second round. Then what about the All Star game? Clayton Kershaw got, uh, he probably doesn't deserve to be the All Star starter. Oh, come but it makes on, sense. You're
1: Dodger Stadium. you got to well, put him on there. He,
0: he wasn't the best pitcher. I know people wanted the, the Marlin pitcher, City Alicantro,
1: but I, I, I felt Kershaw, they got to give it to him. Sorry. Now, Otani supposedly, it would have been great to have Kershaw versus Otani, yeah, but Otani said he doesn't want to pitch, so that's why he's not pitching. And then Cole opted out of the game, and Verlin. Verlander opted out of the game. That's where all these, a lot of the star pitchers opted out because they pitched last weekend and didn't want to pitch in this game.
0: Yeah, Verlander threw Saturday. So did Scherzer. Um... A lot of people wouldn't even know Shane McClanahan if they saw him on the side of the road. He's the uh, AL starter. He's having a great season. Uh, What else do we need to look at in baseball here?
1: Well, Juan Soto rejecting a 15 year, $440 million contract from the Washington Nationals. Uh, This is one of those things where you heard it, he's rejected, you're like, he's crazy. He has two and a half years on his contract just now because they signed him to one of those contracts. So he's sort of has set making 20 million a year. So they were gonna rip up that and then add the, and put the 15. Uh, but he rejected it because it was an average contract of 29 million. Scott Boris is his agent. Uh, and then the question is what the Nationals do. Now, everyone thinks they're gonna trade him. There is an aspect of this. The Nationals look like they're gonna be sold. So someone who buys the team, you could have a Steve Cohn or someone, a billionaire buys the team and say, no, I don't trade Juan Soto, I'll pay him whatever he wants. So there's an idea. Everyone thinks that he is gonna get traded I don't—again, whoever trades for him, they're going to have to sign him. And we talked about this with Kevin Durant. How many teams want to sign half a—they're going to pay him $500 million, $600 million? You're talking about the Yankees, the Mets. And these guys, all these teams all have their own free agents, like Judge, who they're signing. The Mets are going to sign. have to sign Alonzo. They already have Linder to be big contract. Are they going to sign—they don't have—these big teams don't have the money to pay him.
0: Yeah, we were talking off-air, like, what's the landings? Even the Dodgers, who usually are always in the game for a big free agent— they're kind of full, and do they want another one of these massive contracts? They have bats already to a big,
1: big number contract. They let Seeger go when they go and sign Soto to this again. It's not the Pirates are not. You have no. about 20 teams that don't even think about. Like Scott Forrest is not even. I bet yeah, you the Pirates are not on phone. even his rolodex. Like <laughs> Pirates, what they play baseball? Like do I call them like? It's easy to be Scott Forrest. You're only dealing with a few teams, and the Phillies have Harper. I mean, we're going through all the different teams. They all have their fringes. The Angels, oh, they have Trout. They're gonna have to re-sign. Otari. They pay Rendon
0: 30 million.
1: Yes, a year. they don't. These other teams don't have so. Soto wants all this money, but someone has to pay it. I mean, it's. I it to go somewhere. They like, you go know, Kansas City Chiefs play in the NFL. I don't know. <laughs> go to live golf, maybe he can play. Maybe they'll give him uh, money. For
0: some reason, I think Texas, even though they just brought in Marcus Simeon and Corey Seager, this is a team that's basically saying we want to win. They've got a lot of young pitchers coming up in the minors. I'm not going to be shocked if Texas opens up the checkbook again. Um, where do we sit with 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 the standings? Because you know it's crazy to think about. The Baltimore Orioles are are basically in the playoffs in the hardest division in baseball. It, it's been kind of a wacky season. The only thing that's pretty much in in stones that the Yankees are running away with it. The
1: Yankees running away with it. Minnesota and Cleveland, the White Sox are their tight. And Houston has a nine game lead over Seattle, who also Seattle and Baltimore had this stretch run right before the All-Star break. What's remembered about what's happening in the playoffs? I was talking my one friend and I the other today, and he didn't remember. It's the top two seeds, like NFL football. The top two seeds get buys. So you want to be win your division and you want to have the better the the one of the top two records. Because the division winners, so this would be Minnesota's at fifty wins they're going to have to play uh, also a wildcard team in the first round. So they have to play a three-game series. There's no one-game series or whatever. So the two wildcard teams play each other, and then the worst division winner plays. So right now Minnesota would be having to play another round. You do not want to be – that's like for the Mets. You do not – you want to have the record that you're going to be advanced. You do not want to have to play a wild card team.
0: Interesting way the uh, records broke out. Cincinnati opened up two, uh, uh, three and twenty-two to start the season. Mariners closed it out twenty-two and three <laughs> for the end, the, the first half. Um, anything else you want to look at in baseball here before we get to uh, Marshall John Fisher? Just more. I can't believe the Dodgers. The Dodgers are sixty and
1: thirty. This is a team that has struggled all year. They have played poor. They have had bad. Everything has seemed like they have not been dominant, and they still have this great record. I mean, yeah. it's like it seems like the Dodgers. I mean, if you're the Dodgers and you're like, "Wow, we we're, we're up and we're up ten over San Diego," I remember last year they played well, but they they couldn't. The they Giants could, kept the Giants them, yeah. just kept. So it looks like the Dodgers, and that's what hurt them because they had to play the Giants in that one game playoff. Scherzer would have to overuse Scherzer relief. It was a problem. All those other things they bring. Uri- they they sort of like when they played against the Braves, they were always like a game. Back, trying to get back, so this getting this buy for the Dodgers is going to be really, really important.
0: Let's go to Marshall John Fisher. This is Iron Sports.
1: This is Iron Sports. We're honored to have Marshall John Fisher, who just completed and wrote a book. It's in stores right now called Seventeen and O. It's about nineteen seventy two and the NFL's only perfect season. Marshall, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports.
2: Hey, Iris, glad to be here.
1: Well, I loved your book. And it was, it's like for people that are sitting, going to the beach and say, I, I don't want I can't get ready for my fantasy football season or I can't keep reading about Tua. It's nice to go back to yeah. 1972 and look at the, at that season. And, and the one question I had going into with reading the book was, well, back then, they probably didn't think undefeated seasons was that so great. You know, who cared about undefeated season? You know, now we, you know, the, the, the Patriots, all the teams, when they first lose, is a big deal. But you mentioned in the book that it was a big deal back in 1972 people they knew they were going undefeated.
2: Oh, yeah, and you know, the thing is, um, people thought it was impossible. Um, so and and uh, when they got up to eight and oh, nine and oh, that Shula absolutely refused to talk about it. He, all he cared about, he said, was getting back to the Super Bowl and winning it because he had never been able to win the big game. But um, players would talk about it a little more than he did. But uh, you know, uh, Jim Langer and Bob Kuchenberg would be in the locker room and. One would say to the other, well, I think Bob would say, you know, he'd say, Jim, obviously we can't win every game. No one can do that. So which one are we going to lose? You know, when, and Langer would say, well, we're not going to lose this week. We're playing the Patriots. So then they then they'd get to the next week, and he'd say the same thing. And he'd go, well, we're not going to lose this week. Because each week they were the better team. But they had, everyone had the feeling that it could not be done.
1: I mean, you go in your book, you mentioned 34 and 42. The Bears went undefeated, lost their last game. The 62 Packers yeah. were undefeated, but Shula stopped them. And then, of course, we know about the 85 Bears and, and the Dolphins stopped them. The, the team only lost one game. And, of course, 97 pats in the Super Bowl against the Giants. And it seems like, you know, when we talk about the, this team has now become legendary. There's only been one in the history of the NFL, one team that's gone undefeated.
2: Yeah, it's incredible. You know, I mean, it, it was 50 years of NFL football before them, and now it's been 50 years since then and you know, obviously the patriots came extremely close, but they didn't do it. So, you know, when when something's only been done once in a hundred years, that's pretty special.
1: <laughs> and I love this story about your book. If anyone everyone's probably been to Miami or lived in Miami, we're broadcasting from West Palm Beach. Uh, yeah. But the background of the 1970 to 1972 in Miami, that was not the Miami you see today. And you made that clear in the book that it was, it was, this town was, it was totally different. First of all, you mentioned like the players are just living with the fans. I mean, they're normal people, they have other jobs yeah. on the side, but it was not this glamour in the hotels and everything that we know of it today.
2: No, that was a very, Miami was very different back then. You know, I grew up there. Um, I, we, Moved there in 1966 when I was three years old, and, and the Dolphins were just beginning their very first preseason when we moved down there. And uh, I grew up there, and it was a very, very different place and uh, not not as, high, uh, not, you know, not as highly charged as it is today and uh, not as crowded. And, not, um, and in, as far as sports, the Dolphins were the only – they weren't just the only NFL team in Florida. I, I think they were the only professional, you know, major league professional team. Uh, of any sport in Florida. So, uh, you know, it was a lot different there. And, um, and in their first few years, it was kind of a quiet scene in the Orange Bowl with the Dolphins because they were an expansion team and weren't winning very much. But once uh, Don Shula came down and and they immediately went to the playoffs that year and uh, the, it just exploded, the excitement exploded.
1: Yeah, you mentioned in the book about Joe Robbie, who people just remember Joe Robbie Stadium. They probably don't remember he's the one who bought the team and brought the team here. Was a lawyer was trying to put a get deal together, and, uh, and yeah. we just saw that the Denver Broncos were sold for four and a half billion dollars. I think he bought it on a couple million dollars in some IOUs, and he was able to own the Dolphins.
2: Yeah, and it wasn't his money because he was he was he grew up poor in South Dakota, and he was he became a lawyer, but um, he was just a practicing lawyer in 1966. He wasn't a wealthy man. Uh, but he heard that they, AFL wanted to start a team uh, in Miami. And so he jumped on it and he got some investors and he kind of stayed one hand one step ahead of the banks the first few years when the team wasn't doing well. And they kept shuffling money around and uh, he ended up making quite a lot of money on it. But he started the team. Yeah.
1: And then... Uh, surprisingly, I mean, we we see this. Don Shula is considered one of the top coaches in the game. Coached for the Baltimore Colts, took team who Super Bowl well and lost. But they're able to lure Shula down to Miami uh, and give him an ownership of the team and those things. But that was a, a coup at the time that you know, someone like Shula would leave an established team like the Colts with Johnny United as their quarterback and come to the Miami Dolphins.
2: Absolutely, but uh, you know what happened was uh, Shula was he was considered the best coach in football, but He'd never gone all the way, he never won the, the Super Bowl. And uh, and with the Colts, he when he got there, there was no Super Bowl, and, the, and the, it took him a few years. And he finally won the NFL championship with, with the Colts. But it was the third year when the NFL champ had to play the AFL champ in what they called the Super Bowl. <laughs> There's a Super Bowl number three, and uh, he lost that one a humiliating loss to Joe Namath and the Jets. So after that, his stock kind of dropped in Baltimore. The owner treated him very badly blamed him for the loss and uh, the next year 1969 was a, didn't, they didn't have a great year so i think um the owner carol rosenberg was actually thinking they wanted to get rid of shula although he hadn't told him that yet and when shula and shula was not happy there then so when he got the call from joe robbie he actually was all ears he was a good chance for him to get out of there
1: he comes down there, and the former coach Wilson, more lackadaisical practicing those things, have fun, yeah. and, and Jula has. He put the term four a days. I mean, now players there's not even two a days, let alone four days. You put that schedule together. You yeah. wrote in the book from morning to practice. Like you wonder how they survive. Yeah. And then he also well, no water. Can you imagine Florida like going out like people? <laughs> everybody in Florida is carrying a water bottle at all times. They had to practice in pads without water four times a day.
2: Yeah, well, that was 1970. His first year, there was a a player strike while they were negotiating a new deal, and the veterans didn't show up until uh, a couple weeks late. And as a result, he scheduled four practices a day, and uh, they were just the players. All talk. They still talk about it how brutal it was. And yeah, he didn't let them have water. Zaka said that Shula wanted them to told them they he wanted them to become camel like. So when they're playing a tough game in the hot heat down there. Uh, the other team is dying that they would be strong.
1: And you've got to give Joe Thomas, the general manager, credit because as you go through all the players and sort of like with the Steelers, I mean a lot of these players were not highly drafted. They were free agents and he just was able to cobble together this team of, of players that everyone was overlooking. What an amazing job and, and considering how many Hall of Famers they were able to put together on that team from players that were just discarded from other teams.
2: Yeah, Joe Thomas was a huge part of it. You know, he. He uh, he was there from the very beginning, and, and he was something of a genius of a of a player personnel guy. He and he he did all the traveling, the scouting, and he, he did the drafting. And uh, before this is before Shula got there, but he brought in a lot of great players. That, um, you know, they didn't come into their own until they got to play for Don Shula. But they were they were there in '68. You know, he got he brought in Zanka and Kik and drafted Mercury Morris, uh, Bob Greasy. A lot of the great players were there already. And uh, he made this, the incredible trade um, for Paul Warfield in 1970, just as Shula was about to arrive. But it was Joe Thomas who got Warfield down there, and uh, and then and then he left. Uh, he he uh, did not get along with Joe Robbie, so he was not around for the Super Bowl victories. But he was a big part of building that team.
1: You know, a lot of people, when they talk about the 72 Dolphins, they say, well, the team was, you know, they went undefeated, but the schedule was one thing. They got lucky. They weren't really that good. But, you know, you go through in the book. I mean, they had three of the top running backs in terms of Zonko's Hall of Fame, Mercury Morris, and Jim Kick. I mean, it's sort of like if people are thinking about today, it's more like the Baltimore Ravens in terms of how many running backs. I mean, each one of them would be a first-round fantasy uh, pick. And then they have an offensive line of Langer, Little, and Kuchenberg. Uh, two of them are Hall of Famers. The other one probably should have been. And then to add on to that, That team, you have Paul Warfield, who at the time was considered the best wide receiver in football. He was the Cooper Cup, or however you want to compare it now. And they were able to trade for him, so you really had the best running backs besides O.J. Simpson, the best offensive line, the best wide receiver, and then and Greasy, a quarterback, and more of a quarterback. But it was a very good offensive team.
2: Oh, and defensive, every single position they had a great player. Even if they made some of them might not have been famous uh, and gotten their due, but they had they were incredibly good team, no matter what the schedule was, you know, and that schedule actually didn't look so easy before the season, because some of the teams that uh, were supposed to be really good and didn't have as good a year as they were supposed to have, but, you know, they had to start out in Kansas City against the Super Bowl contender, then they played Minnesota in the Game 3 of Super Bowl contender, and the Colts and Jets were both supposed to be playoff teams. Um, but they didn't end up having great years. Of course, they had to play the Dolphins twice each year. But but that was a great team, and they showed it the next year because the next year they were even more dominant, even though they, they lost one game to Oakland early on and another one that didn't count later. But they completely destroyed the playoff and Super Bowl opponents.
1: I loved how you went through the book and, and game by game, and, and really there was the, only the one game that Minnesota, when they were con- had to make that comeback. Yeah. Everything else during yeah. the regular season, I remember they only were playing seventeen games now. They played fourteen back then, um, and that in that Minnesota comeback was the, early in the season was a key game in terms of they really controlled all the other fourteen games.
2: Yeah, that was the that was the one, and of course it happened before anyone was thinking about undefeated. But yeah, that was a great. Brutal, brutal defensive game. Two great defenses against each other. And the Dolphins were down in the fourth quarter. They, they got a, um, a long uh, double-reverse pass from Marlon Briscoe, who, who sadly just passed away. Uh, that was a huge play in the fourth quarter. And then Greasy drove them down, and from the three-yard line, he made a fake run when everyone thought it was going to Dhaka, and he just pitched it over the middle to Jim Mandich for the victory. That was a great game. Uh, but you're right. Other than that, the, the two playoff games were pretty close. But uh, you know, the Dolphins—I don't—at uh, least we fans thought it was never no. <laughs> in doubt. Sure the other team would think differently. But uh, it was—it it was just an amazing team.
1: We're talking to Marshall John Fisher, Fisher author of Seventeen and 0, about the 1972 Dolphins, and I guess the key moment of that season was Game Five when Brian Greasy, their star quarterback, gets hurt. And uh, Shula brings in Earl Morrill, 38 years old, who has been a veteran in the league, won a Super Bowl with the Colts uh, at that time, but uh, uh, but I no, didn't look it took the team Super Bowl, but the point is that he had to make that switch because Greasy was injured for the rest of the year. So Greasy only played the first four games and then in the playoffs.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You, know, you talk about good luck or bad luck. I mean, they lost their all-pro quarterback in Game 5, and that was the only game my family got to go to. I remember watching him being wheeled out in the stretcher, and everyone thought, well, you know, that's the end of our season, but they had, Shula had wisely brought in Earl Morrill, who had been his, uh, the backup for Johnny Unitas for Shula in, up in Baltimore, uh, and he, he's 38 years old. He was going to retire, but Shula convinced him to come down and be the backup, uh, and no one thought he would play much, but he had to come in, and uh, he, he won 11 games in a row for them, and he was just a funny, a great guy. He was so mellow and low-key, and he just came in, and no problem, handle the team. Everyone liked him, and he did a great job.
1: And it must have been fun at the end when everyone, after they're nine and zero, they realize they're going to probably you know a chance to go undefeated. Then they play Joe Namath, uh, a TV uh, at home, uh, in and and you mentioned the book. It was interesting. People. Uh, the games were blacked out at home. Even if they were sold out, they were still yeah. blacked out. And so people had to yeah. listen to the games on the radio. And then the 11th game, the Monday night football game against the Cardinals, uh, Howard Cassell was there. And also, it was, you mentioned in the book that TVs were black and white really 70, 71, and 72 was the year that they became color, I, and that's where a lot of, in terms of watching color TV, and that's where the dolphins, with their beautiful dolphin colors and those things, that's why people are dolphin fans. I mean, I know so many friends that are like, have no connection to Florida at all, but the, well, my father was a dolphin fan, or my grandfather was a dolphin fan, so I became one, and they're living in Pittsburgh, maybe. <laughs>
2: that's great. Yeah, you know, color TV, some people had color TVs in the late 60s, but it didn't. wasn't until about 72 that the majority of <laughs> How households had them. So, uh, and then we were just like that. We had black and white in 71 and color in 72. So, you know, that's another thing about that year that we, you we finally were seeing it in a very different way. And in a third, as you say, yeah. Yeah, especially the dolphin. The colors are great.
1: <laughs> and then the thirteenth game, when the, with all this media, and remember, this is reminiscent of the Patriots. Remember that Patriots Giants game in the regular season where they almost lost that game, and that was because of, now they go in the media capital of the world. They're coming up and they're playing the Giants, and that was when that's when everyone started talking about undefeated season, undefeated season, especially in New York.
2: Yeah, game thirteen was played in Yankee Stadium against the Giants. We were still playing in, in the stadium then. Uh, there's a very loud, la- it was one of the last games they played in Yankee Stadium. And it's the only time the Dolphins ever played there. And it was raining hard. They were playing in the mud. It was a tough game. The Giants are another team they played that year that were supposed to be, make the playoffs. And in fact, they were in playoff contention until that week, which is the next to last game. So that was a tough game. And uh, as you say, though, uh, in New York, they got up there and everyone, all the reporters were like asking them about undefeated, undefeated. Whereas in Miami, it was more low key. They weren't getting that. You know, not
1: big a deal. And then the final game of the season, uh, the regular season, was against Johnny Unitas, who was a backup quarterback. It was actually his last game that he played. And then you mentioned how they against the Colts at home. And then Greasy actually came back. He was healthy enough to play. Came in in relief a little bit, just as a for some series. But that uh, being Johnny Unitas, considered one of the greatest quarterbacks ever. Game that was his last game against the seventy-two undefeated Dolphin teams. A lot of history in that game.
2: Yeah, his last pass for the Colts ever uh, was intercepted by uh, by Doug Swift. <laughs> but, um and uh, but yeah, Greasy was healthy again, and now, okay, they're undefeated, they're going to the playoffs, but now Shula faced this big choice of whether to uh, bring back Greasy, who was healthy, or go with Morrill, who just won like 10 games in a row. So um, That was a tough one, and it was very similar to the same choice he'd had to make in Baltimore, which did not work out well when they lost the Super Bowl, and he stuck with Morrill. So, that uh, uh, was a hard one for him, and he, he, he stayed with them a little longer. But brought, brought Greasy back uh, midway through the AFC Championship game. Yeah, they beat the, just right. They beat the
1: Browns on Christmas Eve, and uh, and yeah. then and and, and that yeah, that was one of the games they came back. And then you mentioned about the AFC Championship game. It's one of the first games I remember. I remember that we couldn't see the game in my hometown, and we because it was blacked out, and we had to drive to Cumberland, Maryland, and I watched the game in a hotel room in Cumberland, Maryland. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it was. But I, when I'm reading, I, love, I read your description of that AFC Championship game. Remember, the Steelers had just won the game before on the Immaculate Reception, one of the most famous plays in the history right. of football and people yeah. thought, well, didn't they win the Super Bowl on that? No, they didn't. they didn't win it. They just won yeah. their first playoff game. But it was like, I think yeah. of the UNLV-Duke comparison where UNLV was this great team and they played Duke once and then they lost and they played again. And it wasn't that, and I just think too, the, the passing of two great teams, the fact that the Dolphins were this phenomenal team and the Steelers then had this great dynasty and what a great game to have the Dolphins play the Steelers when maybe the Steelers weren't at their full strength or whatever. Maybe the Dolphins were there, but it was just, it's great to see what when you look in history, wow, this game would have been amazing. I was not at the game. It would be one of those games I like to be at. Because, And you talked about how yeah. Larry Little, the offensive guard, went against Mean Joe Green and all that the competition in that game.
2: Yeah, that was such a great game. And you know, the funny thing is the Dolphins were 15-0 um, and 0, and the, the Steelers had lost two games, but the Dolphins had to go up and play in Three Rivers Stadium because back then, until a couple years later, the home field did not go to the better record. They took turns. The divisions <laughs> took turns hosting their championship game, so, so they had to go up there and play in this really tough atmosphere. You know, with those fans were just brutal. And, uh, and they had to go up and do that, even though they were undefeated. And uh, Bradshaw got knocked out in, the, the I think it was the first or second series. Uh, Jake Scott nailed Harry Bradshaw, and he, and he fumbled forward into the end zone, and it was recovered for a touchdown, which, uh, you know, no longer would be allowed. Uh, you can't do that anymore. But on that play, so they got a lucky touchdown, but on that play, Bradshaw got knocked out. And uh, Terry Hanratty had to come in, although he played very well. Bradshaw came back in later. He had the battle between Larry Little, Mean Joe Green, which was epic. And, of course, the most famous play of that game, is uh, Larry Seifel's fake punt in the first half. He, when they were down 7 nothing and kind of stalling, he faked the punt and ran 37 yards for a first down, which totally changed the game around.
1: Well, that was a, a great. I mean, that, of course, again, the the Dolphins dynasty, sort of the dynasty of the next two years, but the Steeler dynasty, yep. then winning four Super Bowls in six years. A couple years later, that leads to the yeah. Super Bowl in L.A., uh, which was considering. I was just at the Super Bowl last year and had to pay a zillion dollars for, for I mean, the tickets were going for a zillion dollars. You mentioned that it was not even a sellout for the game. You could get in for fifteen dollars, but the Dolphins were only yeah. a one a one point favorite in that game against the Redskins.
2: Yeah, and some people like Jimmy the Greek picked uh, picked Washington, even though the Dolphins were undefeated. Uh, you know, they didn't; they still weren't getting full respect for what they had done. Uh, and uh, but they, you know, Miami dominated that Super Bowl most for most of the game. It could have been a much bigger score. They had a long, beautiful touchdown pass to Warfield. They got called back for uh, illegal motion. And uh, another time, they drove way down to the two-yard line, and, and Greasy surprisingly went for a pass and got intercepted. Uh, and then, of course, the, the play everyone remembers is Gary I mean, uh you know, when and his field goal. He's going for a 37-yarder, just nice, easy field goal to make it 17-0 in a 17-0 season. And it got black, and he tried to throw the ball, and he went straight in the air. And then he, it came down, and he popped it back up like a volleyball when <laughs> it got intercepted for a touchdown, which made it look like a close game, but it really had not been.
1: And then uh, you mentioned in the book, I have a big problem with how they give the uh, MVPs at the end of. The, I think it's it's total craziness. And you watch in the winning time yeah. how the question was, did Magic got the MVP in the in the one his first uh, championship over Kareem when it was supposed to be Kareem, but then they switched it. But you mentioned in the book that one person decided the MVP, yep. and, and even though Manny Fernandez had what eighteen tackles in the game, they gave it to Jake Scott instead.
2: Isn't that crazy? Uh, like one guy chooses it, and uh, they, they, a lot of people said he wasn't even watching because he was hungover <laughs> from being out all night the night before. So he just, you know, he saw Jake Scott make this great interception, which is true, but um, even Jake agreed that they probably should have given the keys to the truck that he got to Manny Fernandez, who had the, the best Super Bowl any defensive lineman ever had.
1: And I just loved how you described the players. And, and, and you. one thing you mentioned in the book was, first of all, Uh, what Chula emphasized was integration. Some of the teams were segregated, even on the team, and everything was together. People were in the different rooms, and that was important to him. And also how intelligent the players were. Uh, They they all had careers outside. A lot of people had successful careers afterwards. And it was was this brotherhood of a team uh, that people, you had three running backs all wanting to be the star running back, and they all were sharing carries, but they all got along. Uh, You don't see that in today's game as much.
2: Yeah, no, it's really true. And Shula deserves a lot of credit for, you know, when he arrived in 1970, the, the locker room was segregated. <coughs> you know, the black guys were on one side and the white guys on the other side. And and uh, as far as roommates and training camp and on the road, it was all segregated um, by choice, you know. But, but, but the thing is, Shula came in and he insisted that uh, they integrate, mix up the locker room, and he assigned roommates, and they were all mixed. Uh, whenever he could, he mixed races in the, as, for the roommates. And he insisted on that they be a team and not be not be segregated in that way, and uh, you know, and that really worked. You know, it really worked for the team and made them very close. And even though they had a lot of very different personalities on that team, they they blended very well as a team.
1: Yeah, and of course, it was one of those. I, I found it. You know, you were you were you were young when you were watching this. It sort of yeah, set yeah. the tone. I mean, it really was the team, and it was. And it set Miami again. Would you, would you describe the the pictures you have all these pictures of Miami. What it looked like in 1970, and then if you see what it looks like today, completely different. But I'm not going to give it all the credit to the Dolphin team, but it did accelerate the idea that Miami isn't just some place where people retire. It was actually going to be this modern city that people are going to go and enjoy and entertainment and work and business and all those things.
2: Oh yeah, I think that team made a, made a big difference. Um, and Larry King talked about that. You know, Larry King was starting his career in, in Miami and. Was uh, he did in fact he did um, color commentary for WIOD in seventy and seventy one and, and he was a, he was he loved that team and I talked to him before he passed and he talked about what a big deal the Dolphins became in the city and what they meant to the city and uh, yeah I mean they in some ways the Dolphins put them on the map put Miami on the map uh, people were seeing them on TV and seeing the city and it became a major league town.
1: Yeah, in your book, we're not we didn't delve into so much of it, but it was interesting in the book about you describe how the two political conventions was the only time I think one other time it happened where in the city in 1972 that Richard Nixon was the president at the time uh, was a huge football fan would call and write the the Washington coach and and Shula all the time uh, and that he vacationed to Key Biscayne down here in Florida so he had some interest with that so the whole mix of politics uh, with this team there was there was a lot going on in that book and, and at the time. Yeah,
2: yeah. That was one of my main goals in this book to not just talk about the football, but uh, of course, of course, I do tell all about the team and the season. But I also wanted to weave in with that the um, what was going on around. I in Miami and around the country because Miami was kind of a focal point that year for everything that was going on in America because of the two conventions being held in Miami Beach and uh, Nixon being down there so often. Uh, you know, keep his So uh, as you say, Nixon was a huge fan. I'm sure he, he plays a big role there. And uh, I tried to talk a lot about the, you know, Watergate and the Vietnam war still going on and everything that was going on in society in the background.
1: Yeah, and the fact that the team was able to stay focused and still stay together as a team. So it was your writing style is great. The book is amazing, and as I, say, I encourage people when they go to the beach, again, uh, this is uh, this is a good book. It's a great book to read and to learn and, and to and to see a team because you go through the. Pl- it, it's almost a. Fi- In many ways, it's a fiction. It reads like a fiction book, but it's real life. It's the seventy-two team. So, Marshall, I really appreciate you come on coming on Iron Sports and talking about your book Seventeen and Zero and I encourage people to get it from Amazon, Barnes and Noble, every where you buy books. Yeah,
2: that's right. Thanks, Ira. I enjoyed talking with you.
0: Thank you so much. Good stuff there from uh, Marshall John Fisher. Appreciate him popping by Ira on sports. So, Ira, we were, you know, NBA is keeping itself in the news. And we thought that DeAndre H in first round pick three years ago for the Phoenix Suns was going to be moved. They kind of didn't want to sign him. Maybe he was going to be traded for Durant. Looks like he's saying thanks to the Indiana Pacers. So
1: the Pacers signed him to a four year, $133 million contract. The Suns matched it, and now he can't be traded till the middle of the year. It's almost the Suns did it because they're like, okay, because they could have paid him more, but it was, I, I think, I don't think anyone who signs a four year, $133 million contract and is upset that yeah. they, he <laughs> he's not happy with that.
0: No, that that was a little bit weird to me. What's going on with, with the Brooklyn Mets? I mean, Nets. Uh, well, I, I, I've I been saying this on the show from day one. I don't
1: think Durant's getting traded. I don't think Kyrie's getting traded. I think they're going to run back this back again. I think teams are looking at what they're asking for. And there's so few teams. A lot of these teams have traded all the draft picks. I just don't see what's going to happen with Durant. The Knicks are focused on Donovan Mitchell of Utah. They're not going to bring in J- They don't Durant. have enough anyway. They together. don't have enough. And they're looking for all these draft picks. It, I think it's Durant stays. Again, Durant is going to be 34 next year. He has four more years. Uh, in the playoffs, he did not play well against the Celtics. He shot 37 percent in that series they got swept and this is a team that you know we talked about last week Giannis was able to take three games Jimmy Butler took three games and the Warriors were able to take four teams off the Celtics they weren't this great unbeatable team Durant didn't play well and if you're going to work if you're going to trade your entire team to get Durant then what do you get back you're, he's going to be on a bad team and I, and I think from Durant's perspective just stay on your team they should try to do what they can do Kyrie Simmons and, and figure out what it makes it work
0: uh, let's talk a little NCAA football because The landscape is drastically changing in what we were expecting maybe even just two years ago. What's going on now?
1: Well, there's three more years of the playoffs, and they have SEC media days. And Greg Sankey, who's the commissioner of the SEC, is now – he brought last year, brought Oklahoma and Texas in. This year, now, USC, UCLA, go to the Big Ten. There was this – they were trying to do a playoff where they would have – all the conferences would have guaranteed spots, those things. But now that he sees all these conferences being weakened, he says – The offer that was on table before, that's not the offer now. (laughs) Like, I don't care about all these other guys. I care about the Big Ten. I care about me. And everyone else can figure out what they want to do in that scheme of things. And he goes, we offered the PAC. And if the PAC-12 and the Big 12 would have taken – the PAC-12 really would have taken this offer, and even the ACC, he was surprised that they were against that. But it's like now he's saying, well, in
0: three years when this is up, who knows? Are University of Miami, uh, Florida State, and Clemson headed to the uh, SEC, you think? Not yet. I think it's, I, I would be shocked if we're going to see
1: anything move any movement except, or it doesn't seem like the Big Ten even wants Oregon and Washington. Like I don't think we're going to see, this might be it. Like last year when Oklahoma and Texas moved, we were waiting for something else. Nothing else happened. This is now, both the SEC and the Big Ten are going to be at 16 teams, and they're sort of like saying, look, we're we're going to wait and hold on and then these other conferences will see what happens.
0: What, uh, what about auto racing?
1: I watched the NASCAR race on Sunday after the Open, and it was a Christopher Bell had a big win. Uh, they have this thing in the NASCAR where you have to win a race and you're guaranteed going to be in the playoffs. And if so then otherwise they go to points. But now 14 with him winning it was his first one of the year. 14 of the 16 teams, 14 of the drivers have spots. There's only two open spots with six races to go. Some big name drivers who haven't won this year who have competed really well might have a chance. Chase Elliott, who's been lights out this year. He was, he's been first and second in the last four races. He finished second. He was so depressed that he finished second too. I couldn't believe it. But uh, Martin Truex, he's one of the drivers that has not won a race this year but really high in points but he's he might be left out um, and the winner of this race it was in New Hampshire gets a 21 pound lobster so it was so funny and and, and uh, Bell said I don't like lobsters and they showed him holding the lobster he was, uh, it was uncomfortable and then one other thing in the race was Austin Dillon and Brad Kozlowski uh, Austin Dillon started crashing Brad Kozlowski and he's like why is he hitting me and they didn't even like hit each other during the race and it was like one of those things where it's like Austin Dillon goes I just don't like him <laughs> that was the reason why he kept banging into him during the safety lap when they were under the caution he kept running into him it was fun very much Tyler Degan Knights um,
0: you think that UFC pulled off something amazing we're going to have to wait a few months but this is could be massive
1: well this fight they just made an announcement the they UFC makes the fights but Charles Oliveira is the lightweight champion well he's not he's technically not the lightweight but a thing but he's had 11 straight wins beat Chandler Poirier Gaethje. considered the pound for pound one of the top two or three fighters is now going to fight Islam Mukachev who is Khabib's mentee and everyone's been he's won 12 in a row so you have one fighter who's won 12 in a row one who's won 11 and one has been the champion who is a plus 215 that shows how much the betting crowd loves Islam Mukachev. like this guy this yes, is plus gonna plus
0: 215 for the champ it's for not a champ yet. for someone
1: who hasn't lost who considered <laughs> one of the best this is why this is you're getting the two best fighters it's gonna be UFC 280 in October and it's gonna be a, it's in Dubai it's gonna be a monster fight a worldwide it, it'll it, it, so I saw actually this was this you wish thing like this happen in boxing because the fight should be made now when they're in both in their prime. Don't wait four or five years while they try to put things together. So give uh, Dana White a lot of credit for putting this fight on in October and it'll be great to, uh, to You're
0: happen. not excited about Le'Veon Bell's burgeoning uh, boxing career? <laughs> oh my gosh. Le- <laughs> Le-
1: Le'Veon Bell and Tony Brown. Like we would have more Super Bowl titles. Those guys. They just run it back another year. And I I was actually on the uh, making, we're talking about where I go next. I was making plans to go to the Steeler training camp. My friend runs the Steeler training camp and I
0: was like texting him. I'm like, Get me VIP passes for that. And then um, in the NHL, Vincent Trocek, who we've had here on Iron Sports... Excellent player. Going to my New York Rangers. I'm pretty I happy about that. I can't believe
1: you didn't text me on that. <laughs> I mean, Trocek, I mean, he's on. We've had, not had that many hockey players on our show, I have to admit. that he was a great guest from Pittsburgh. So it's going to be, and considering that would be great playing for the New York Rangers.
0: Seven-year deal. He's excellent in the face-offs. Plays really hard defense. I'm really excited about that. Uh, what else before we wrap it up here?
1: Um, next week, I'm so pumped. I've been trying to get this guest on for like three years since we started our show. To me, he's the best writer out there. Jeff Perlman, he wrote a great book on Barry Bonds, great book on Walter Payne. Peyton, uh Brett Favre, the USFL, the Lakers. He's had two book books, and, but he's the producer, executive producer, of uh, Winning Time, which is my favorite show on HBO about the Lakers with Magic Johnson and uh, Krimo Abdul-Jabbar. And he doesn't do any interviews. And I am so excited to have him on the show to talk <laughs> about Showtime and all those other things. So I can't wait to have him on next week.
0: So we are out of time. Thanks so much to Marshall John Fisher for popping by. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Iron Sports.